Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontifrac. Have I been waiting for this one for a really long time? Jean-Piero Petriglieri. Jean-Piero, first of all, bio, and then we're going to get into a whole whack of leadership questions. You are, Jean-Piero is, Associate Professor of Organizational Behavior at INSEAD, <laughs> his award-winning research and teaching focus on what it means and what it takes to become a leader. He's particularly concerned with leading well in the age of, quote, nomadic professionalism, in which people have deep bonds to work, but loose affiliations to organizations. We're going to dig into that. Building on two decades of experience studying and working with executives and companies around the world, Giampiero has refined a unique approach to experiential leadership development that aims to deepen and accelerate the development of individual leaders, as well as to broaden and strengthen leadership communities within and across organizations. At INSEAD, if you're so lucky to be a part of his world, he directs the Management Acceleration Program, the school's flagship executive program for emerging leaders, and he also chairs the Initiative for Learning, Innovation, and Teaching Excellence. He also designs and directs customized leadership development programs for multinationals in a variety of different industries. He speaks widely on how to develop and exercise leadership in fast-changing, uncertain, and diverse workplaces. And finally, if that's not enough, Jean-Pierre has chaired the World Economic Forum's Global Agenda Council on New Models of Leadership and has been named one of the 50 most influential management thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50. He's trained as a medical doctor and psychiatrist, and I can guarantee you he leads from the heart. Jean-Pierre, thank you so much for being here, my friend. We've... Um, had the privilege over the years of hanging out a bit, being in the same rooms and discussing leadership. You've publicly stated the following, so we're going to start here first. The intent of my work is to humanize leadership and its development and to make it account for emotions and relations and all the messy stuff that makes us whole and can break us apart. And I believe, this is you, that the way to start doing that is to take seriously the idea that leadership is an art. Now, I'm a thousand percent behind you, even though that's not a number, but what do you mean, Giampiero, by leadership is an art? I mean that is an enterprise that collapses the distinction between doing something that I care about and doing something that's useful to others. I think, you know, the artist is, is a metaphor for that incredibly generous, self-absorbed person that digs into their truth to speak to someone else's view. You know, an artist doesn't just have to sell. An, art, an artist has to resonate. And in order to do that, they have to express themselves, but they also they have to speak to others. And I think leadership is exactly the same way. To, to think of good leadership is to stop asking, was that for you or was it for them? Is to, is to think about something that is for us. And I also mean it in the sense that, um, you know, Leadership is an art in the sense, it, and I don't mean it to say, because people say, well, does it mean it's not a science? Mm -mm, not at all, because mm. many artists are actually great scientists. 
you know, they really understand the techniques and technology that allow them to create something unique and relevant and resonant. What I mean is that you use all your knowledge, all your tools, all your skills, all your cutting edge, um, you know, resources to not just to make something, but to bring something into the world that says something about you and that affects the life of other people. And if you think of art, the point of art is not to get you to think what I want to think. Mm. It's actually to get you to think for yourself. The great, the greatest art is evocative. And then what I love about the idea of art is that art usually involves not just thinking, it involves actually making something. And I and I think when I talk about humanizing leadership is I'm really trying to get leadership away from being this kind of intellectual enterprise. You know, leadership is not just having ideas or visions or making plans or devising ways that you can reach some goals. Leadership has to do with bringing something to life. Uh, a group, an organization, um, a society, or keeping it alive when it's threatened or changing it so that there's more freedom and people feel more alive and, and all of that. And so I think this idea, taking it seriously, taking it almost literally, honestly, taking it almost literally, this idea that leadership is an art, can actually take us into a more expansive view of leadership that includes moving other people to reach some goal, but it also involves bringing some values to life. So, and I think that's, um, you know, that's what, um, that's what an artist does. And an artist is still a professional. It's still someone that has to make ends meet. Money is involved. You could also be spectacularly successful and make great revenues, but that's not just what you measure art for. It's necessary, of course, for you to have a revenue stream and for you to continue to make art, but it's not sufficient for you to call yourself an artist. For you to call yourself an artist, you need to reach your goals and also kind of give life mm -hmm. to something. And I think leadership needs to be seen in that expansive way. Otherwise, we end up with a truncated view of leadership, a mechanistic view of leadership. And I think leadership is a lot more than that. That's a really good springboard, the mechanistic view of leadership in so much as the question really for you, Jean-Pierre, next is, so is there something that's getting in the way then of leadership being both the combination of the art and the science? As you say, you're not naive, nor am I enough to suggest that it needs to be all art because caring is important and doing it for others is really important. You and I, I think that's why we bond. But there's still the fiduciary responsibility of EBITDA, of profit, of revenue, of the creativity of new products, new services, customer satisfaction, all the things that are business factors. So how do you reconcile, I suppose, Jean-Pierre, with leaders who are only truncated in their view of leadership, that they think it's just science, that they think it's just the mechanistic view? How do we get to them? What, what's, your, what's your take on that, I suppose? I guess my take is that's not leadership. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's, you know, very, very valuable, you know, it's a very valuable activity, but I don't think it's leadership is um, if there's no why. 
you know, it's it's half leadership. And, and for me, half leadership is no leadership at all. Um, yeah. So you've also said that um, being in the physical presence of an effective leader should ideally make the team member, the individual feel calm, uh, clear about priorities and cared for. I love all three. I particularly love care, given I wrote something called Lead Care Win. So yeah. let's let's talk about your view of leadership as an art through being feeling calm and clear about priorities and cared for. How does that relate to sort of your, your unfolding yeah. definition here? Yeah, I mean, I think art can do that. Art can make us feel, you know, we're we are not alone, you know, that someone else was thinking that, or maybe there's a different way of seeing it. And I, I also think yeah, I might have written that, but I, I also think sometimes leadership um, makes us feel excited, you know, mm. makes us feel bothered, makes us feel um at the end of the day, I think good leadership moves us. Um moves us in two senses in the emotional sense and in the physical sense we feel something and we do something and sometimes it moves us from fear to to safety from confusion to clarity from um, you know uh, overactivity to focus but other times it moves us from boredom to excitement from um, complacency to concern so you know when i when i say that I don't mean to say that leadership makes us feel always good. Mm. You know, sometimes it makes us, and and I think, and I think some art makes you feel good. You know, makes you feel at peace, makes you feel, you know, one with the world. I guess what I meant by saying that is that good leadership connects us, mm. okay. holds us, yeah. brings us together with with something more than us. You know, connects us to other people, connects us to a group, connects us to a purpose, connects us to a place, connects us to something that makes us feel we're not just, you know, meeting those goals you were talking about earlier. We're actually leaving something behind. I'm writing something right now um, using the metaphor. Have you, have you ever been to talking about art? I went and visited some of the earliest recorded art. And it's um, in some caves in the in the middle of France, in the region of the Perigord. There's these caves in Lascaux, mm. uh, where um, some seventeen thousand years ago, some Paleolithic um, men and women went and and painted a whole Sistine Chapel of animal scenes and whatnot. And then the cave became conserved and it was rediscovered in the 40s by some kids and it was brought up and and you cannot visit the actual cave because it's too fragile for visitors but some scientists have built a life-size replica and so you go there and um, it's perfectly dimly lit and you know you can touch it it has the same feel of the actual cave and you imagine someone thousands and thousands of years ago, who probably had also other worries trying to survive, predators, safety, you know, not all the comforts we enjoy. And, and yet decided for whatever reason, um, they were gonna paint these magnificent animals. And we don't know why they did it. And there's a couple of uh, theories of why they did it. One is that they were an accountant, okay? That this was actually, incredibly beautiful accounting, the kind of 
uh, animals and that populated that area at the time. Another one that this was, you know, some kind of place where rituals were held that had to do with hunting and, um, and all of that. And you see, and I like to think that maybe they were a bit of both. Maybe they were a bit of both and that they were accountants with an artistic license, that they were not just repeating the world, that they were representing it, that they were giving it an extra meaning. And I think this is, um, this is what leaders often do. They don't just replicate um, actions and they don't just repeat what everyone's always done. They don't just do what needs to be done, but they add a layer of imagination and they awaken in others. Um, I think what I felt when I went and visited Lascaux, which is a sense of wonder. Now, is that calm or is that excitement? It, it's a mix. And I think good leadership always does a mix. It makes you feel like this is where I need to be, but also it makes you feel like you want to move and build something and do something different and make things better and all of that. And I ask myself, I mean, this is my reflection really. Uh, I'm, I'm speaking as a, as a person more, more than as, a, as an academic or as a scholar. Why would someone do that? Why would someone spend their time? You know, why did humans decide that it was worthwhile to spend their time grinding stone, making <laughs> colors, and then right. painting on a wall. It has absolutely no survival value. It has no mechanical value. And the reason why they did it is because it's quintessentially human to want to leave a mark. Mm. And someone wanted to leave their fingerprint on the rock Okay, before the fingerprint turned to dust. And I think you and I and everyone else is always looking for that. He's always looking for how can I leave my mark on this world while I'm here? And so I also account for the fact that for some people, you know, meeting those numbers and making the shareholders happy and, you know, growing an organization, that might well be that purpose. And in that case, it's a form of art mm -hmm. in the same way that the, the people at Lascaux might just have been, you know, making some version of the encyclopedia, but they didn't just do it replicating the shapes of the animal. They added their own view, their own perspective. In, they did it in a way that wasn't just, that wasn't just respectful of the truth but that was um, respectful of their imagination. And I think every leader does that. Every leader doesn't just see the half the job is to be ruthless about what is true, what are the circumstances, what needs to be done. And then at the same time, imaginative, what could be. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, and I think in that, um, yeah, and I guess that's what I mean. Like that, that this, uh, And in that sense, I think, leadership always makes a stop and say wow i hadn't thought of that oh i hadn't seen it that way oh that makes me feel less alone <laughs> and that makes us and that's soothing and then it makes us feel like i better do something about this yeah and that makes us move right and if you think if you think about it you know there's one thing that leaders and artists have in common that they're very often being in the, um, 
some at least, okay? They've always been either, either devoted to the status quo. So leaders and artists that try to keep things as they were and you know sing the praises and paint the picture of why the, the king and the emperors were so great and deserved worship. Or they were often dedicated to change. You look mm -hmm. at all the great social changes and you have leaders that are working for it and artists that are working for it. So art and leadership are always there to evoke and provoke. Wonder. What if? Now, it so happens that some leaders provoke concern. What mm -hmm. if there's change? And, and let's, let's circle the wagons. And some leaders you know, provoke um, excitement. What if we could be freer? What if we could be bigger? What if we could be more whole? <laughs> and uh, and so I think, you know, to say that as a leader, you're an artist, it really implies thinking, what do you want to evoke? And what do you want to provoke? And in whom? Because also like, you know, I, I used to like, I remember being a teenager and using to like music, for example, that my parents thought was noise. Mm. and uh, i think leadership is the same maybe there's a group of people that thinks you know your your art speaks to them moves them frees them up uh and others that think you know your art diminishes them or it's just incomprehensible but at, at the end of the day i, I guess i'm gonna have I've spoken way too much i should stop leadership and art always do two things one they make you feel suited and the other thing is they make you feel free Hmm. So it segues again nicely. You do such a great job at your definition or perhaps just thoughts on loyalty. So mm -hmm. in this day and age in our organizations, you know, I feel that leaders, leaders are pretty stressed, pretty anxious, burnouts on the rise, World Health Organization calling it an occupational hazard. And so retention and perhaps the development of people couldn't be more important in this, if we can call it post-pandemic era, Jean Piero, where, where does loyalty fit for you in the definition of leadership as an art and the fact that we've got these real consequences that are occurring inside the organization between burnout, attrition, and just a real uh, gong show uh, <laughs> in terms of the yeah. mental social wellness of our people. Yeah, I mean, Dan, you know, I'm not very big on loyalty. Um, I think it's a lost cause oh. to be honest. In, in the sense that I don't think it's a post-pandemic thing. I mean, for the last 40 years, organizations have um, proven relatively unreliable places to put your, your trust in. Um, and, you know, this is very well documented. You know, I'm, I'm not being cynical. I'm just being realistic. Yeah. Yeah. The, the job tenures and downsizings and changes and the fact that people have felt less and less they expected that you know even if they did a good job that job might continue to exist and then as technology accelerated it's like maybe their organization isn't necessarily thinking of getting rid of that but the actual job disappears and um, and all of that and um and then what you saw was the rise of a generation that actually 
thought, well, even if someone offered me a job for life, why would I want a job for life? <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I would want, I would want uh, to see other things. And so I think, you know, I don't think loyalty is um, honestly something that many people, many organizations are really offering these days or many people are expecting. Mm. Uh, at the same time, I think we have to separate loyalty and commitment because, you know, I think these days, I think the normative relations to our employer is I might be here today and somewhere else in five years, but I expect you to value my commitment. So I can, I may not be loyal, but while I'm here, I'm extremely committed. And that's, you know, you mentioned my definition of nomadic professionalism, right? You know, I think what we've done is we've moved to a working culture in which we expect, we don't necessarily expect organizations to give us a career ladder or a job for life and all that, but we expect them to give us a space where we can be committed to our work, where our commitment is recognized and it's rewarded with what? If not with loyalty, well, with learning. Mm. And that's it's why- like skill development, right? Well, not just skill development, you know, I development of my professionalism, my capacity with the opportunity to do good work mm. and to learn what work is good for me. You know, again, you know, it's not like we are born with, we don't know how we're going to leave that fingerprint on the rock. But what, what my research shows is that any organization that gives me the space to think, what is my mark? And that gives us the tool to make that mark is going to be a good organization. Mm -hmm. And people remain attached to it even after they've left and they recommend it to customers and they recommend it to other people. And so in many ways, you know, I and I think certainly, you know, these days we there's still too many companies that tend to conflate retention with engagement. Uh, these are not the same thing. I totally these agree. Not the same thing. I could have someone that left ten years ago. That's what my work shows. I left ten years ago. Is incredibly engaged. They want this organization to survive because this is where their roots of their success, of their sense right. of self, of their sense of you know, I can do well in this world is, and I can have someone that we are paying we're giving them a bonus we're trying to motivate them with all sort of thing and feels in this place you know my work is um my work is an expand i'm not expanding you mm -hmm. see and and i think because we have learned to be a little bit weary of organizations many of us have actually put our investment in the work and and and, and we we've also been taught We've been taught, like, make sure that your skills are up to date. Make sure that you know what you're doing. Make sure that you're marketable. And, and I guess we've learned. We've learned that, okay, I better be a professional. This, I mean, this was always the case for the traditional professions, right? For the medical doctors, for the lawyers. Mm -hmm. and what, But I think now everyone is like that. And this is, again, why the metaphor of the, art, of the artist is interesting, right? Because the, the thing we could debate is this. Um, Michelangelo. Mm -hmm. Who does he work for? God? <laughs> well, I mean, God doesn't sign, I don't mean to be blasphemous, all right? God, just doesn't, <laughs> God doesn't sign checks. And Michelangelo's got to eat and buy the scaffolding and, and the paint and the brushes and all that. So he works for the Pope. 
But does he really work for the Pope? Or does he work for it? For his art, well, yeah. kind of does work for the Pope because he's gonna paint um, sacred scenes and all of that. But then he's gonna have a massive argument with the Pope, saying, "Well, look, I'm gonna paint them naked." And the Pope, the Pope says, "Are you are you insane? You cannot do that." <laughs> right. It's like this is the Catholic Church. People cannot be naked. It's, well, I'm I'm the artist. You pay me, and I expect you to pay me. But then I'm gonna paint what I'm moved to paint, and and so I'm working with you. Okay, but I'm not working for you. Mm-hmm. You're giving me a mandate, but then I need to bring my personal expression to that mandate. See, once you tell people that you want them to be empowered, you want them to be professionals, you want them to have a learning attitude, you, and what you, you basically organizations are telling people, we want you to be more like an artist. You know, we commission your art and you can find meaning, express your whole self, impact the world and whatnot. Then you cannot tell them, um, but just just make sure you put the underwear in the in 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 the in the chapel because suddenly they're gonna say well you told me to paint you know the creation i painted the creation but i'm gonna paint it the reason why you hired me to paint it is because you want to give me some artistic freedom and you see that's the thing i think we're still wrestling with because most of our most of our organizational science, most of our practices are still focused on the problem of how do we have enough control? Um, not too little, because then the organization breaks loose, but not too much, because otherwise people sort of lose their will, we lose motivation, we lose innovation and whatnot. But today, the really big problem is freedom. Mm-hmm. It's actually, how do we have enough freedom so that people can come up with new ways, can bring their own self to work, can feel committed, um, but how would we not have too much freedom that we become confused and we don't know what we're doing and why are we here and what keeps us together and um, and all of that. And, you know, I believe in many ways, many people, certainly talented people, the kind of people that then organizations want to retain, retain, they don't work for the company. They work with the company. And um, I think as a leader, you really, really need to understand that and mm. understand what that means. Um, does it mean that companies and organizations don't matter? The opposite, the <laughs> opposite. But they matter not because they give you loyalty, because they give you safety that if you do what we tell you, you're gonna have the next step. They matter because they give you learning, because they give you some kind of guarantee that if you do your best work, we will allow you to do more of that, either on a larger scale or with more precision. And, you know, I mean, if, if anyone has, um, has ever looked at my work, it kind of touches on this paradox that incredibly, in fact, the organizations where people are likely to stay the longest and be most committed are the ones in which they feel, I could live tomorrow and I'd be okay. Mm. I remember this, I think it's one of my pieces. I remember the first time I actually saw it not just in research and theory, but in practice, you know, going to one professional service firm and uh, and the managing director pointed at a group of, um, you know, at a team, I think 20, 30 people. And, um, and she told me, you know, every single one of these people could go to our competitors tomorrow and they're that good, okay? And if I go to them and tell them, 
um, I'm going to pay you a little more. Our competitors could match it. And if I told them, well, but you have to be loyal to our firm, remember? They would laugh. So the only way I can keep them is if I can promise. If you stay here for another week, next week you will learn and grow a lot more than if you were working for that competitor. And then I need to keep that promise. Mm-hmm. And I think every leader that's concerned with engagement first and then retention needs to think about how do I not make, because everyone makes it, but how do I keep the promise of learning? Do you think then, jean that as we unfold your wonderful discourse and thoughts on leadership, that a leader's partial responsibility as well for the team members in which they lead is to invoke both meaning and agency in the ways in which that those individuals are thinking about how they operate in their job. So for example, in the leadership and the art of leadership, and if uh, we're not worrying about loyalty, but knowing that that team member is there for a committed period of time and they want that commitment, does then ergo the leader need to be thinking about how they can help instill a sense of meaning in that not just role, but maybe person's humanity and invoking agency so they know that not only will we empower and provide autonomy, that that self-determination is what we want to graduate them from in that role when they move on you know, um, to another role or to, to another organization. Yes. <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I, I've given, I feel like, you know, I, I, I've given very long answers and, and I've stated it so well. So you went the other way. You just went, yes. <laughs> I, I, think, I, think, I think it's, I think I've said, you know, you've stated it so well. I don't think it can be art if it's not yours. If you're just copying someone else. It can be called skill, but it can be called art. So there has to be agency. And I don't think it's art if it doesn't say anything about you and if it doesn't say anything to other people. And what we know about meaning is that meanings comes from two things, self-expression and connection, right? And uh, and so for me, again, that's just a shorthand to talk about art. It's just a shorthand to talk mm-hmm. about the fact that, you know, there has to be, it has to be initiated by me, agency, and it has to express myself and connect to other people, which of course generates um, generates meaning. Um, you know, we, as, as far as I'm concerned, meaning is a by the sense of meaning is a byproduct of the fact that what I'm building um, says something about me and and seems to connect me to others. That closes that existential gap between me and the other person it reminds us that we are unique but we are part of inside the organization in teams um there is obvious and at times ubiquitous friction and uh arlie hoschild in 83 wrote a book called the managed heart and in the managed heart uh arlie came up with the term emotional labor And basically, the definition is the effort required to evoke and suppress feelings on the job. And I wanted to ask you just kind of about that general definition and your sense of emotional labor. What what is it that we're doing wrong uh, inside our organizations and leaders ultimately having to fix such that 
we can bring, you know, quote, our best selves to where we can feel like we are doing our best with a leader who is an artist helping create the conditions so that there's less emotional labor. Um, so, first of all, I don't think you can eliminate all emotional labor. So if, um, if I'm ill and um, I need an operation, I really would appreciate if my surgeon conveys a sense of calm and competence, even if they're just freaking out because <laughs> they're, you know, they're struggling with their marriage or because they're, you know, they their landlord has decided they want to, you know, end the lease or, mm. or whatnot. So I do think some emotional labor in order to focus, to perform is always necessary. Um, I, I think what we're doing wrong is, you know, you and I know that in organizations, including our own, then there's layers and layers of emotional labor that have nothing to do with being focused on doing our best work, but have to do with, with pleasing other people, with, uh, you know, conforming to some kind of norm that was maybe relevant 25 years ago, but we keep doing that. And, um, and, and so, you know, I, I'm a big friend of, bizarrely, because I speak so much about art also, of kind of physics and engineering metaphor, you know, some emotional labor is not just, you know, bringing our emotions into the work. The art is emotional labor. Yeah. Art, I mean, like what artist is happy? Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, as an artist, the, the artist is um I well, Spring, Spring Springsteen's happy, is he? He's an artist. <laughs> Have you not read his book? The best leadership book, by the way. Ever. It is. I totally agree. Written, you know, I've written I reviewed it, you know, look it up. I reviewed it for the Harvard Business Review. But, you know, he speaks about his depression. So yeah. open, so movingly, he speaks about needing, you know, approval and the fear of the void of not having the ability to to express himself through music and have others, you know, find that music meaningful. So yeah. uh, he, he, he might have moments of happiness, and I wishes I wish him so much because he's he's given so much happiness in my own life. I actually, saw him live. I saw, um, I saw. A, few, a few weeks ago and uh, and that concert didn't evoke happiness actually it evoke you know a sense of the passing of time and you know mm. we were all middle-aged and there was a sense that our youth was still there to be touched but but yet somewhat a little bit in the past and it was beautiful because you know it it reminded you okay this is where we're at um but anyway that don't let me digress that so the art is always struggling with their emotions and they're doing labor because, uh, you know, they're really trying to take all those emotions and give birth to the art. And uh, I don't think anyone would say that that's useless emotional labor because the struggle, the torment, the turmoil, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not a big theorist. I mean, I think if you want to be happy, there's really many other things you should be doing other than lead. Leads are, leaders are constantly dissatisfied. Leaders are constantly like, oh, things aren't moving fast enough. The world isn't just as good as it should be. You know, I wish I was better. If I was better, you know, think that there's always, you always live in the, if there was no gap, 
between what is and what could be, there would be no leadership. Mm. Leadership is always is, is that feeling that I care, is that cocktail of care and uh, concern. Mm-hmm. Concerned and I care. I don't want someone else to fix it. I need kind of act and I need to get other people to, to act with me, right? So happiness is really not something that happens very often when you're leading and not for long periods of time. Uh, happiness comes from meditation, prayer, you know, sex, having a good meal, uh, you know, something that settles you. Uh, leadership has to do with moving. And so sometimes you always, you always push it. But anyway, that, that's emotional labor. Okay. That's yeah. a very different kind of emotional labor than I don't know why I need to stay here until 10 p.m. Because I guess everyone else is staying here at 10 p.m. I find something to be busy and I'm really frustrated, um, but I better smile. Or, you know, I'm in this team meeting and uh, I've tried to speak three times and I made a point and, um, and people have ignored my point. And, uh, you know, that guy made the exact same point and everyone said, um, great job, yeah. you know, great job. And um, instead of uh, saying, wait a minute, what is this? Or, my God, this place is unfair. I say, oh, yeah, great job. That's emotional labor that just kills you. And so for me, the question is, um, I am really a big friend of emotional labor. Um, But the question is, is emotional labor um, a response to an opportunity? Aggressive regime, which is the thing what Arlie is talking about, mm. or overtly and more subtly oppressive, or is emotional labor an effort to find my voice, to free myself up? So I do think leaders are always going to ask some emotional labor of people, but you better make sure that that emotional labor makes um, them whole makes them free and that also creates more space for a plurality of voice you see and i i think when i talk about humanizing leadership i think of it in two ways one is i think of it sort of from a from a kind of conceptual uh, academic if you want writing perspective which is make sure that leadership is more than just a set of tools mm-hmm. that being the the why you know this is why the artist is the science for something you know the tools the skills for an intent Um, But when I think of leadership in practice, humanizing leadership means um, making sure that you help people show up with their whole selves and that you build organizations where different people can show up with their whole selves, so Mm. which are pluralistic. And so it's whole people in pluralistic organizations. If you're trying to, and this is, I mean, you and I have spoken about this many times. This is my enduring crusade against the um, the great business religion of alignment. <laughs> yeah. Now we we worship very few things these days except alignment. Alignment is good. Alignment is the greater good. If we're not aligned, and I think alignment generates some of that toxic emotional labor. Mm-hmm. That it doesn't matter who I am and what I think, I better always bridge it to that which we have to be aligned to. And then, of course, we say, oh, well, we don't have innovation. We don't have inclusion. Of course we don't, because alignment has to do with conformity, has to do with efficiency. And so innovation and inclusions are the victims 
of our obsessions with alignment. You want innovation, you want the inclusion, you're going to have to abjure alignment. Okay, you're going to have to just really let it go. It's not. Now, there might be parts of the organization and there might be moments when you want that. And when is that execution? Yeah. But whenever you're trying to, and, and alignment is a great way to build a machine. And this is why, you know, we go back to the beginning, right? As a leader, you're an artist, you're not a mechanic. Yeah. If you're a mechanic, all you care about, are you aligning the pieces? Is the machine efficient? But if you're an artist, you're building a culture. You're mm -hmm. building a society. And I think much of the friction we have these days in business and, you know, maybe emotional labor is a, there's good emotional labor and, and for me and there's, and there's bad emotional labor. And one is, I think of emotions of energy, good emotional labor, use emotions as energy to build um, a, some, a better society by some measure, by which I mean freer and, and more pluralistic. And, um, and bad emotional labor is the one that, you know, just turns me into a machine, a cog into a machine that's trying to be a little bit more efficient. And I think a lot of the friction we have in business these days is because the discourse of business has moved to building a society. I mean, which business just says we want to be more efficient? No, they say we are a community here and we are trying to make a difference in the world. And so, you know, we really are a society. But then the practices of management and leadership are still remain very mechanistic and so we're trying and, and alignment is how you build a machine um inclusion innovation is how you build a society uh, a society can't just be efficient it has to be human and um and so for me emotional labor is wasted mm. whenever it shrinks us it narrows us to that one normative set of expressions mm have to do with fitting the organization. They haven't got to do with focusing me on the work. But emotional labor can be good when it allows me to do my best work. If I go into a classroom and I'm furious for something and I don't have the capacity to say, hey, my students here, you know, they need my attention, they need my care. And instead, you know, I bring whatever fury I have for whatever has happened and just start shouting at people. Well, guess what? I, I'm not doing my best work. But if you know, you're going, yeah, you know what I mean? I do. And I, um, I was thinking to myself, Henry Ford invented, obviously, the assembly line. And although he may have helped us move from six-day work weeks to five-day work weeks, it was right around the time, clearly, of still Taylorism and the scientific principles of management. So I think right. what what you're inventing for us is um, Petriglieriism, and it's the artistic <laughs> principles oh of God. management. The artistic principles of management, Joe Piero. What do you say about that? It could be the uh, title of the book. Okay, look, I, I guess you're challenging me to say, do you have an idea and, or do you have an ideology? And I think art yes. is a little bit of, of, of both. But yes, there, there is certainly a, an intent. I do think all, um, and one of the things that I find um, complicated, but also at the same time honest about the decade we're living in, that we're kind of accepting that all leadership is political. Yeah. And all art is political um, in the sense, not in the sense that you are aligning with a political party, but in the sense that you're trying 
to build a society, which I hope, which I hope when you're acting as a, as a leader, you think is good or better than what was before, because there will be no greater waste of our time on this planet than spend a lot of effort doing something that we don't think is going to be better or good. Um, and in that respect, every leader is um, is political and mm -hmm. they're trying to build the world a certain way. And if you say, no, I'm not, I'm just trying to efficiently achieve some goals, you asked me earlier, then you're a mechanic. And by the way, I say with enormous respect. Mm -hmm. I, I use that matter for a lot because my granddad was um, was a mechanic. And, uh, you know, I said, you know, my, my biggest concern is make sure the car gets back on the road safely. He found great joy in that craft. Um, and, you know, that made a massive contribution. And you could say in certain moments, it was also a kind of art, but it became an art, not when he was thinking, how do I get this repaired as quickly as possible? When he started thinking, oh, you know, this person is going to be safer on the road because of my work. So mm -hmm. you see, it's not the nature of the work is whether you transcend its instrumental concern, right? And and I think, and I think an artist needs to balance instrumentality. Hey, did you deliver that piece of music that that festival commissioned by the deadline? Because otherwise, you're not going to get the check and you're also going to embarrass it. There's, there's all kinds of instrumentality. It's not like I'm saying, oh, you know, you forget your shareholders or, you know, don't deliver your product uh, on the shelves on time. Absolutely yeah. not. You got to deliver. Um, but that's not, that's the means. What is the end? And the end, only humanism can provide it. And I think when we can balance humanism, uh, who am I trying to become? What society am I trying to build? With instrumentality, how can I make sure that I'm competent and efficient? Then we have um, an organization that people want to be part of. Then we have a team that people feel, uh, you know, meaning in. Um, then we have work that you can broadly call good because it requires you to make efforts. It requires physical effort, cognitive effort, emotional effort, but for something. We feel something, we do something. And mo I don't think I don't think most of us want to do things without feeling anything, but I also don't think we want to feel something without getting anything done, honestly. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe sometimes, but when it comes to work, um, we'd like to feel that we're making, you know, we're getting better um, at, at doing something that matters. And so I think, yeah, when you make you need to balance the two. This has been incredibly powerfully wonderful, Jean Piero. Uh, we could go on for days, it seems like. Thank you for this. Uh just thank you so much. Uh incredible. I mean, you if I ever was on an airplane and the pilot asked for is there a doctor on board, I'd want you there because you're both <laughs> both the scientist, the doctor, and the artist all in one. And I know. You'd save me and you'd care for me. And uh, thank you. Here's yeah. here's to more glory days, Jean Piero. Here's to, and uh, well, remember, they'll pass you by. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> all right, everyone. We're going to put in the show notes all the different ways in which you can reach Jean Piero, uh, a whole whack of various research papers, HBR articles, etc. cetera. Uh, he's a treasure trove of really what it means to be a caring and thus uh, a leader who is an artist. Jean Piero Petriglieri, thank you so much. We will see you next time. It's great to be here, Dan. Thank you for having me.